day, everyone, and welcome to Citroen Kuberman's Taxes in 10 podcast. My name is Joe Gouble. I'm the firm's tax practice leader. And today we're going to be talking about equity compensation in the corporate context. And to do that, we have two speakers, John Gens, who's a tax partner in our New York City office, and Alana Cockman, who's a tax director in our New York City office. John and Alana, welcome. Thanks, Joe. Thank Appreciate you coming on uh, on the podcast. So, John, why don't we just start off with just some basics? We always hear the term equity compensation, but, but what does it really mean? Well, equity compensation, Joe, is a very powerful tool for management teams as it allows business management to better align the goals of employees to the success of the business enterprise. But it's also important to understand that the tax implications vary depending on the type of equity compensation that is offered. Some types of equity compensation are more beneficial for the business entity, and others are more beneficial to the individual receiving those options. So in short, all equity compensation is not created equal, and the impacts of each type should be considered prior to issuance. Okay, good. So Elena, I know there are different types of equity compensation. Can you just give us a real brief description of a few kinds we have in the corporate context? Sure. There are three primary types of equity compensation. Um, incentive stock options, non-qualified stock options, and restricted stock units. As John alluded to, each of these types has unique tax considerations that must be analyzed by the company as well as the recipient. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about each one of them. So let's talk first about the incentive stock options, ISOs. And so what are the specific tax considerations of those and what makes it so unique? Incentive stock options are, as you said, ISOs are a type of employee stock purchase plan and are generally considered to be the most advantageous to the individual receiving them, but least advantageous to the company. They're generally only offered to key employees or management positions. These incentive stock options often do not result in a tax deduction for the entity, yet they have favorable tax treatment to the holder of the options. To qualify for this favorable treatment, the options require a vesting period of at least two years and a holding period of at least one year. This is important to note as the tax treatment is dependent upon meeting the set criteria. If this criteria is met, the vesting, the option holder, at vesting, the option holder can purchase a specified number of options at the set exercise price. If the employee holds the shares at least one year after exercise, the disposition is determined to be a qualified disposition and therefore receives the benefit of capital gain tax treatment. This is what results in a reduced tax liability to the individual. Alternatively, if the employee does not hold the shares for an additional year after exercising the options, it is considered to be a disqualifying disposition, and the difference between the fair market value on the exercise date and the exercise price is compensation to the holder and would be taxed at ordinary rates. So you mentioned that ISOs are very favorable to individuals, but not so much the company. Can you just talk a little bit about the tax implications of the ISOs to the company itself? Sure. So from the company's position, a disqualifying disposition generates taxable compensation to the employee and therefore results in a tax deduction for the company. For financial reporting purposes, the tax implications of these incentive stock options are to be recorded in the period in which they occur. So this results in a permanent adjustment when calculating the tax liability and therefore has a direct impact to the tax expense and effective tax rate of the entity. Generally, an incentive stock option results in no tax benefit to the company. However, the disqualifying disposition occurs 
it would result in the tax benefit for the company. Okay, good, thanks. So John, why don't we just talk a little bit about the various reporting considerations uh, for non-qualified stock options? Okay, for non-qualified stock options, they vary from incentive stock options as the intrinsic value of the options is taxed employee on the date of exercise. The taxability of these options to the employee results in a corresponding tax deduction for the company. There are three events that must be considered in the life cycle of a non-qualified stock option. You have the grant date, the service period, and the exercise or settlement date. For the grant date, there are no direct tax implications associated with the grant date of a non-qualified stock option, but the fair market value must be measured at grant date or later determine the tax implications. For the service period, for financial reporting purposes, non-qualified stock options are expensed over the vesting or service period, generally based on a cliff or graded vesting schedule. Cliff vesting results in 100% of the option vesting at the conclusion of a certain period. A graded vesting schedule results in a portion of the options vesting pro rata over the vesting period. As tax professionals, it is important to understand the vesting schedule utilized for book purposes to ensure the tax adjustments are recorded appropriately. All right, so John, so when we look at a financial statement and you see compensation expense recorded, what is the tax uh, impact of that? Although the book expense recorded for the non-qualified stock options is a valid tax deduction for the company, the timing of this deduction often varies for book and tax purposes. Non-qualified stock options are not exercisable until the options are vested. Therefore, there is a timing difference between the book and tax deduction. As the difference in treatment is simply a mismatch in timing of the deduction for book and tax purposes, the accounting standards specify that a deferred tax asset should be recorded in the initial period of recording the book expense. The deferred tax asset is generally is generated by reversing the book expense that has been recorded for financial reporting purposes, but for which there is no current tax deduction available. The impact of the deferred tax asset is reflected in the balance sheet of the company as the impact of the deduction is a, is a timing difference for book and tax purposes. The recorded deferred tax asset continues to increase over the vesting period, but is reversed when the options are exercised by the holder. Once the options are exercised, the previously disallowed book deduction is an eligible tax deduction now, as the expense recorded is considered taxable income to the holder of the option. Furthermore, the fair market value of the options exercised less the associated book compensation or grant value typically results in an additional deduction for the company. This additional deduction for the company is determined by subtracting the grant value from the fair market value on the date of exercise. Difference in these two amounts is recorded as a permanent tax deduction for the company, therefore directly impacting the net income of the entity by reducing the overall tax expense and effective tax rate. When accounting for non-qualified stock options, it is also important to consider forfeitures and cancellations. If our options are forfeited or canceled before exercise, whether it is the result of an employee departure or declining stock price, the impact of the forfeiture or cancellation must also be reversed from the deferred tax asset. Wow, hope everybody got all that. 
it's quite an answer, John. I thank you. So I'm going to give you a break now. I'm going to bring Elena in. So we've been talking about ISOs and uh, non-quals, qualified stock options, a little similarity differences. So let's talk about restricted stock units or awards. Where do they fit into all this? Sure. So restricted stock units are taxed very similarly to non-qualified stock options, but there are some distinct differences that we should be aware of when analyzing the tax impacts to the company. So an issued non-qualified stock option is a right to purchase a certain number of shares at a specified price during a specified period. Alternatively, restricted stock units represent a promise to grant shares of company stock in the future if certain requirements are met. A restricted stock unit generates taxable income to the holder on the vesting date. There is no action required by the holder. As a result, the corresponding tax deduction for the company is determined once the vesting requirements are met. For book purposes, the book expense related to a restricted stock unit is generally recorded over the vesting period. Consistent with the treatment of non-qualified stock options, a deferred tax asset is recorded to account for the difference in this timing for book and tax purposes. Once the employee vests, the company determines if any excess tax benefit exists between the current stock price and the fair value as of the grant date. Any determined excess is a favorable permanent tax adjustment and a current tax benefit for the entity. There is one additional consideration related to restricted stock units that needs to be considered. The holder of a restricted stock unit may choose to file an 83B election. The filing of this election enables an employee to pay tax on the fair market value of a restricted stock unit on the grant date rather than the vesting date. This is beneficial to the employee if the stock value continues to appreciate as any additional appreciation may be taxed at long-term capital gain rates instead of ordinary income rates. This is important to consider when calculating the income tax provision as an 83B election makes the tax deduction fixed and claimable in the current period based on the grant date and value therefore resulting in the need to record a deferred tax liability as the tax deduction is taken prior to the book expense related to the restricted stock unit. As the vesting requirements are met, the book expense recorded will reverse this corresponding deferred tax liability over the vesting period. Great, great, thanks. And it's important to note with an 83B election, you've got a short time horizon. You've only got 30 days after issue. So, uh, you come in, you do someone's return or return or provision, and 30 days have gone, you can't make the uh, 83B election anymore. So it's important great for people point. to be aware of that. That's great. All right, so John, just in, in closing, a lot of considerations in equity comp and how they're reported on the books and a tax treatment. So in you and in your group, how do you get comfortable that the uh, various equity components are being captured properly when you're doing a tax position, a tax provision for a company? So Joe, aside from understanding of the various types of equity compensation and the appropriate tax treatment, the single item that can have the biggest impact to ensure accuracy of the tax provision related to the equity compensation <clears throat> is teaming with the core accounting and human resource professionals within the company. It's imperative that the tax professionals have a full understanding of the types of equity compensation that have been approved and issued by the company, as well as the underlying book treatment that is recorded for financial reporting purposes and the compensation that is reported to the employee. These open lines of communications between the groups 
is a great first step to ensuring accuracy of reporting for income tax provision purposes. Okay, great. Thanks, John. This was great. Thanks, John. Thanks, Elena. I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And uh, to our audience, please be on the lookout for other uh, relevant tax topics. And I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe and carry on. Thanks. And have a good day. Thanks, Joe. Thank you.